So we're continuing our series uh, in Jonah. Uh, we're in Jonah chapter 3. Before we actually dig into that chapter, I want you to s- kind of stretch your memories a little bit and think of a time in your life when someone gave you something that you really needed. Somebody stepped in and at their own cost, at no cost to you, provided something that you, uh, that were, where you needed in your life. And I'm not talking about like a Christmas present or a birthday present that's kind of obligatory, but just someone saw right where you were at and provided for you. So when I think of that, when I thought of that myself, I thought of my dad who gave me a car when I was in college. I was, uh, my, my parents live in Minnesota. I was, uh, I had gone to school in Chicago. And in my sophomore year in college, I got an internship. Internship was down in North Carolina. So I, I needed a car to get down there and, you know, going to and from work. So I was one of those uh, college kids that would call home like once every three months or less. Um, so I called my dad. I said, hey, dad, I got this great internship, but I, I need a car. Uh, and my dad said, I'll take care of it. So a couple weeks later, the winter quarter ended, and I was back for spring break, and my dad had gone out and bought me a car. Here's a picture of it here. Kind of a humble car, but there. Uh, and he just, he, he had shopped for it, he paid for it, he just handed me the keys. And two days later, I was driving down to North Carolina. And I, I think I said thank you, I sure hope I did. Um, but it, it's only now, after time has passed, that I realized how critical it was, his help was for me to advance in life. Otherwise, the opportunity would have, uh, you know, flown by me. So this is not the actual picture of my car, as I, uh, but it's the same make and model. It's an 85 Chevy Citation. So I went digging around, and I found a picture of the actual car. Uh, and it's uh, from my wedding pictures, so you can see it here. So here I am driving away with my new bride from the church. So when I needed the car for the internship, I hadn't even met my future wife, Leanne, yet. Uh, but looking back, I see how my dad's provision helped me just with one thing after another and set me up to move forward in life. It was, thing, it was something I couldn't take care of myself. I think we all have stories like this of someone's kindness to us meeting a need in our lives. And with that in mind, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3 and see the desperate need of the Ninevites and how God met that need. So we're going to move through the chapter by looking at it as a, uh, an outline as a study of three characters. So the first four verses, the character is Jonah himself, the prophet, bringing the message of uh, God's impending uh, judgment as well as a message of mercy. And the next character is the the people of Nineveh, including their king, uh, who heed the message and call out to God to relent. And then the third and final character is God himself, who sees their repentance and meets their need. And if you, uh, if you like to write the outline down in the blank space there, give a little extra space for the third one because we're going to spend most of our time at that point right there. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles this morning, we are mindful your word is perfect. It revives our souls. Your testimony about yourself is sure. It gives wisdom to simple people like us. By your words, we, your servants, are warned. And in believing and obeying your word, there's great reward. Lord, I pray that the explanation, my explanation of your word, as well as all of our meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first words of chapter three clearly mark this as the second half of the book. 
verse one, uh, chapter three, verse one says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And if you flip back to the beginning of the book, uh, look at chapter one, verse one, it begins, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So chapters one and two are the first half of the book with the first word from the Lord. Chapters three and four are the second half of the book with the second word from the Lord. So let's recap uh, briefly what happened in the first half. Jonah receives a specific message from God. Get up, go to Nineveh, a leading city of the Assyrians, and call out against the city because of their great wickedness. God's patience is ending, and judgment is right around the corner. And you may remember how Pastor Rick explained it wasn't just a message of judgment, but it was also a call to repentance. It was a rescue mission to a lost and confused people. In uh, chapter one, verse two, it reads, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. And Rick pointed out, if you look at the footnote on evil there and look to the bottom of your, uh, the, that page in many of our Bibles, it explains that the Hebrew word also means disaster. God sees the disaster that's coming on them because of their wickedness, and he has compassion on them. So he sends Jonah. But Jonah doesn't want to deliver the message to the Ninevites. This is one of Israel's great threats, and they're one of the most wicked and vicious empires uh, in human history. So instead, Jonah runs. He runs away from Nineveh, and uh, most foolishly, he tries to run away from God. But then we studied how God pursues Jonah. He pursues him with a storm. He pursues him with the roll of the dice. He pursues them even with the words of the pagan sailors, and ultimately, he gets him in the belly of the fish. And there in the fish, we see the transformation of Jonah's heart, and he realizes that God is the one who is overwhelming him, and that God is also the only source of salvation. So Jonah deals directly with God, and he rightly concludes, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then after a quick trip out of the fish, probably pretty gross, uh, Jonah is sitting there on the beach, and he receives the second word from the Lord in chapter three. So now let's go, let's, uh, it's short enough, I'd like to reread uh, those first four verses. Chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So God commands Jonah to go and preach whatever he's told, and this time there's no shenanigans from Jonah. He simply does it. He travels to Nineveh, and he proceeds to walk through the city proclaiming God's message. The text says the city was an exceedingly great or very large city, with, and it was three days' journey in breadth. So commentators give a few options on what this might mean. Um, archaeologists have, you know, the city of Nineveh is well known. You can go see the ruins today. And it would not, inside the inner walls, it would not have taken three days to actually walk across the city. But it could have taken three days to walk throughout the city, throughout the parts of the city, or possibly three days to walk through the city and the surrounding regions. In any case, Jonah's message is simple. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The profound wickedness of Nineveh is going to bring God's swift and overpowering judgment. You remember Rick detailing some of the horrific practices of the Assyrians. I'll put up a slide here of um, one of the uh, stone reliefs that's hanging on the wall, the British Museum. 
Uh, you can see there the, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, laying out their enemies. But they're not just laying them out. They're mutilating them. They're torturing them. They're flaying the nobles, burning the boys and girls. They're, they're wreaking havoc, city after city across, throughout the uh, uh, Near East. But God is going to stop it. The overthrowers are about to be overthrown. And this is a warning to our age as well. God is patience, God is patient, but his patience is not unlimited. It's easy to think as uh, days tick by, years and years go on, that God doesn't see, that God doesn't care. But any day he may send word that our culture's time is up. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So where is Nineveh today? As I said, it's a ruin. It's been just a heap of rocks for 2,600 years. And the same is true for us personally as well. In a short time, you and I as individuals will be overthrown. We are not long for this world. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's so easy to thoughtlessly live one day after another as if life will go on forever. But with just a moment's reflection, we know it's not true. So when God's word of judgment comes and it wakes us up, it's a message of grace. You think about any natural disaster, like a hurricane coming or a tornado coming, even an earthquake. Any amount of forewarning you get is a word of mercy. The disaster itself may be bad, but the forewarning is good news. It means we're being given a chance. And God is sending his prophet to the godless nation of Assyria, to the city of Nineveh, telling him disaster is coming in a short amount of time. It's a disaster of their own making but he's giving them a chance. So at this point, Jonah leaves the scene of the, for, for the rest of the chapter. He's not mentioned again in chapter three, and I think this is fitting, because Jonah is just the messenger. He's charged with faithfully delivering the words of God. In the other three chapters of the book, he's not so faithful. In this chapter, he's faithful. He does his job. And the same thing's going on right now. I'm one of the elders of the church. I am charged with faithfully bringing you the words of God. I might be doing okay, it might be a little, you know, not so good. Uh, it's really not the main point, is it? Uh, you might think Rick, Pastor Rick, is a really talented preacher. Or you might think you have uh, a favorite on the internet uh, or on the radio. They're just messengers. In the end, the only pressing thing, the thing that matters is the word of God, God's words given to you and your response to them. So that's the first character in our chapter. So now let's look at the second character or group of characters, and that is the people of Nineveh as well as the king of Nineveh. Looking back at the text, verse five, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. We stop right there, because it's a dramatic response. It's a citywide repentance. The first half of the book has the famous miracle of the book of Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed by a fish and saved. Hard to believe, it's a miracle. The sec this, in the second half, this is arguably the greater miracle. The people of Nineveh believed God. So to help you picture how dramatic this is, I found a picture from New York City. So this is uh, Times Square. The picture's cut off a little bit. Oh, and it's not cut off there, it's cut off on my screen. Okay, good. It says, repent, Jesus saves. Here's a guy standing there. We don't know if he's talking to other people or if he's just standing there silently. We've all seen street preachers or street evangelists like this. The thing I want you to focus on, though, is what are all the other people in the picture doing? I looked at this for a while. 
So you can kind of just speculate, you know, they're going to work, to and from work, they're going to a show, this Broadway, it's the theater district there, uh, they're on vacation, they're going to go see the sights of Times Square. I mean, I've done the same thing, right? I've been there, it's a, it's a neat place to see. I could easily be in that picture. But what no one in the picture is doing is no one is giving this guy even one moment's attention. So other than the photographer, no one is looking at him. So what would you think if suddenly the whole city of New York stopped and said, hey, wait a minute, this guy is right. We need to repent. Jesus really does save. And then the mayor goes on TV and he calls all New Yorkers. He says, look, stop your jobs. Don't bother going to the show. Meet me in Central Park and we're going to have a time of fasting and prayer and to call out for the mercy of God. It would be astounding, right? Like, what, what just happened? But in response to the prophetic words, this is exactly what happened in Nineveh. The Ninevites actually believed the message and they stopped everything. They confessed they were going in an evil way and they, they, they resolved to abandon the violence that actually built their culture. Even those that hadn't committed the violence personally acknowledged they were lost, without hope and without God. From the highest to the lowest, they all began to perform whatever customary acts of repentance they could think of, sackcloth, ashes, fasting. They even brought their cattle into the fasting, which is kind of an odd thing, uh, the, you know, the cattle getting in on the fasting. Um, comment, uh, commentators say this is not unheard of in the ancient world, but you can see a clue of its meaning if you look at the last verse of the book of Jonah, chapter four, verse 11, jumping to the last word of the book of Jonah is cattle. It says, and God says, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So even God cares about the cattle of the city of Nineveh. And I think it shows that their repentance was complete. They were laying everything out before God. I think it's even more astounding if you consider the religious knowledge of the Ninevites. So these are Gentiles, they're pagan peoples. They've been worshiping the gods of the ancient Near East that were handed down to them. Now we, we look at the Assyrians and we say this is a long time ago, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But their religious traditions stretched back even thousands of years from them. And they were worshiping the gods that were passed on to them. They knew little or nothing of the Hebrew God. And last week when we were looking at chapter two, we saw how when Jonah was drowning in the sea, he remembered God's holy temple. He remembered the tablets of the law sitting in the Ark of the Covenant. He remembered the mercy seat. Jonah knew all that. He resisted God, but he knew a ton about who God is and what he was doing. The Assyrians didn't know any of it. Or consider Jonah's words in chapter two, verse eight. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. For Jonah, he had a choice to make in his heart. He knew the steadfast love of God, but he foolishly chose to go after vain idols in his heart. So it's a bad trade, but he knew better. For the Ninevites, all they knew were vain idols. So from a human perspective, from what we can see, this change of heart is astounding, it's amazing. But from a spiritual perspective, in regions that we cannot see, it's an even greater event. I want to consider what Paul says about the transformation of the human heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and then skipping to verse, uh, verse 4 and then skipping to verse 6. 
He says, in their cases, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The Bible says that man is spiritually blind, completely unable to see the light of the gospel. Even if the prophet or the preacher spells it out clearly in the most appealing, winsome, compelling presentation you can think of, people aren't going to believe it because they're blind. They don't have the ability to see the truth. They can't because they don't have the ability to see the truth of what you're saying. So that's true. How does anyone believe? What makes the difference? Paul says here in in that second verse that it's the regenerating, recreating work of God. Just as God spoke in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. So today, both in the today for the Ninevites and today for us as well, the only way you or I can see the light of the gospel is if God shines directly into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what God did in Nineveh. That's what explains it. God took the word spoken by his bungling prophet and made it effective in their hearts. And not only do the people of Nineveh see their sin clearly, they also see the possibility of salvation through the mercy of God. The king, sends, he, the king uh, concludes, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's possible that Jonah actually talked about this hope of mercy. We don't have many details on his message. But even with, without words, the message of mercy was part of Jonah's example. And Jesus teaches us this clearly in Matthew chapter 12, uh, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, to the uh, scribes and the Pharisees, the unbelieving Jews. Uh, It says, uh, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah's life story was a sign to the city. With or without words, he was communicating, look at me, I was as good as dead, I was running from God, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, but God saved me. It is true that God is just. He brings judgment and you can't escape. But he's also gracious and he loves to show mercy. Jonah would say, look at me, I'm living proof that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that brings us to the third character, the last verse of the chapter, who is God himself. Reading verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God saw their repentant hearts, when he saw all the outward signs of mourning, their admission of their specific sins, the sin of violence in particular, he relented. Whatever disaster God had prepared, uh, he turned it back by the same sovereign power. So a question to ask is, was the Ninevites' repentance a repentance unto salvation? We know from history and from the Bible that within 40 years, basically a generation later, the Ninevites and the Assyrians were right back at it again in their wicked ways. But will we be see, will the, the men and women of this generation, will we see them in heaven someday? I think Jesus gives us a strong reason to say yes 
And we can see that by just continuing on in Matthew chapter 12 and reading the next verse. It says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is comparing the unbelief of the religious Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, to the belief of the people of Nineveh. In the Jews' mind, they were the people of God. They were the shoe-ins for the kingdom. But in God's economy, the humble, repentant faith of the Assyrians counts more. The Jews had all of the law. They knew all about what the worship of God ought to look like. They had the patriarchs. They had the prophets. But God looks at the Assyrians who knew almost nothing. But in humility, they said, we are sinners and we need mercy. And God says, it counts for more. This is the scandalous mercy of God. It's a scandal because it upends our sense of propriety of what we're expecting. We do like to think about the mercy of God, especially if it's for me or for us, right? We're all expecting, well, God's going to be merciful to me. And there's plenty of places in the Bible that give us reason for that hope. The Bible is full of the mercy of God. I want to look at the prophet Micah who says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. This is exactly what we want and it's what we need. But if you reflect on forgiveness in your own experience, if someone has wronged you, if you have to show mercy or pardon someone else's iniquity, you know that forgiveness is often very costly. So right now, uh, uh, during our second service, there is a Sunday school class going on. It's, uh, uh, Gary Bush is leading it. It's, called, it's on the generosity of God. It's very good. Uh, you know, if you wanted to pick up and walk over there, I wouldn't be offended. Uh, and it's a, it's a video class taught by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a very gifted uh, a longtime pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He has a lot of insight into forgiveness. And in his book, The Reason for God, he has a chapter on forgiveness, and he begins the chapter with a monetary um, or economic illustration. So imagine you have a nice house, and uh, your house has a long driveway, and at the end of the driveway, you put a gate. And the gate is, you know, appropriate to your house, so it's a nice gate. One day, somebody is driving, and they back up, and they, they run into your gate. They smash it up. The gate has to be repaired, right? You can't just have this house and the mangled gates. You have to repair it. So the damage is done. Somebody has to bear the cost. Either the driver will bear the cost, the insurance company will cover the cost, or you'll say, well, that's okay, I'll take care of it, and you cover the cost. But the cost is real. It's objective. It can't just be ignored. Then Keller goes on to say, in the book, he says, most of the wrongs done to us cannot be assessed in purely economic terms, like the gate. Someone may have robbed you of some happiness, reputation, opportunity, or certain aspects of your freedom. No price tag can be put on such things. Yet we still have a sense of violated justice that does not go away when the other person says, I'm really sorry. When we are seriously wronged, and we have an indelible sense that the perpetrators, we have an indelible sense that the perpetrators have incurred a debt that must be dealt with. So that's a bit of clear thinking there, isn't it? Let's take that clear thinking and apply it to the Ninevites and the Assyrians. Who had they wronged? What amount of justice had been violated in their case? 
I think an easy way to measure this is to imagine putting the victims of the Assyrians on a cable news show. Uh, whether you're a cable news junkie or uh, you're just watching occasionally, we know what the, you know, this is CNN. But put them on any, whatever show you think is the, has the best interviewer, that's the most fair, the most uh, insight, you know, penetrating. And talk to the victims of the Assyrians. You're going to end up talking to the fathers of the young men who were tortured and killed. You're going to end up having to talk to the mothers of the young children that were also slaughtered. They're all real people, right? This, this really happened. And if you ask them, well, who did it? It's, it's obvious, right? The proof is abundant. The Assyrians did it. They caused all this. And there's really no debate about it. So what's going to be done about it? I mean, that's where the show's going to go, right? What's going to be done? They need to be held accountable for what they've done. So we all have this deep sense of justice. It's really what powers cable TV news. This deep sense of justice. Somebody needs to pay. And if the perpetrators are somehow not held accountable for their deeds, whoever lets them off the hook, whoever could have held them accountable, is now to blame. So who lets them off the hook? My point is that, the, that forgiveness actually exacerbates the problem of evil. It makes it worse. Most of you have heard of the problem of evil. It's a classic philosophical conundrum, whether you're at a Christian school or a secular school, it goes something like this. If there is a God who is all-powerful, then he has the power to stop evil and suffering. And if this same God is all-good, then he would want to stop evil and suffering. But evil and suffering exist. So there's your problem. We see the evil and suffering why should I believe in this God who is all-powerful and all-good when it's more obvious that evil and suffering exist? And forgiveness adds insult to injury. This God who doesn't stop evil, even though he could and should, he actually delights in forgiving evil and evil of the worst kind. So in our day-to-day -day experience, I think we're awfully, that's a heavy example there. Uh, in our day-to-day -day experience, we're often confused about what forgiveness is, but we deal with forgiveness all the time. People offend us. Uh, people do some wrong to us. And a very common response, it's a response I've given many times, is to find some reason why the person really didn't mean it. We'll say, yeah, I'll forgive you for insulting me. Uh, you ignored me. Uh, you, something didn't, you, know, you didn't treat me right, whatever it was, because I know you didn't mean it. You were tired, you were busy, there was some other misunderstanding. We find it easier to forgive if we can somehow excuse it. But this isn't real forgiveness, is it? C.S. Lewis wrote in an essay on forgiveness where he sharply distinguishes excuses from forgiveness. They're basically opposites. If a wrong can be excused, it doesn't need to be forgiven. Forgiveness deals with whatever part is left over. After all the excuses are done, whatever part it remains, that's what, that what, that's what needs to be forgiven. So forgiveness is covering the cost of the inexcusable. And that's what we need to read here in the story of Jonah. What the Ninevites did was inexcusable. And there's no way to say they didn't mean it. They meant to do evil, to inflict pain and suffering on their victims and to actually grow wealthy and powerful at their expense. And their level of sin was incredibly costly. They racked up this massive moral debt 
But then God comes, and they repent, and God shows mercy. But the cost doesn't just disappear, does it? It has to be paid. So who pays it? The Bible says God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. But how can God get away with this? As Abraham prayed, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And in the Old Testament, this is left as a bit of a mystery. Uh, As Scott prayed uh, earlier, God reveals himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is all true. But it's also true that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So how do we square it? In the gospel, the mystery is revealed. The debt will be paid in the only possible way where God can be both just and merciful. God will pay it himself. The victims of the Assyrians cry out, who will pay them back for the terrible things they did to us? And God answers, I will pay. I'll send my own son to earth to be tortured and killed as a criminal. That's the part you're going to see. But what you're not going to see is my beloved son will take on himself the sins of the world and I'm going to pour out on him all my just wrath and holy indignation as those sins deserve. He will pay dearly. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's solution to the problem of evil. It confounds the philosophers, but it saves sinners like you and me. So last week, Rick took us to Romans 3. I'd like to go there and read just a little bit further. In Romans 3, Paul takes up this very topic. He says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, that's continuing the first sentence, the previous sentence, then he says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we talked about how the word propitiation is the name for the mercy seat, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Christ's blood propitiates or satisfies all the demands of God's holy wrath. But in that second verse of the passage, we see how Christ's sacrifice solves the problem of evil, which is made worse by forgiveness. God has to show his righteousness because by all appearances, he looks unrighteous. How can God be just and justify these sinners? How can he take someone who is so obviously unrighteous and just declare them righteous? This is the work that Jesus did on the cross. This is what it means when Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree and by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus paid the cost to cover the sins of the Ninevites and Jesus paid the cost to cover our inexcusable sins as well. When we read a passage like Jonah 3, it's important to realize we're we're essentially just like the Ninevites. We have the same bent human nature as them. It's It's a mistake you want to avoid when reading history is to not say, wow, they're really bad. I would never do that. Because it's not true. I would do that. If you put me in the same cultural context, with the same background, the same life pressures, apart from the grace of God, I'm going to do the same thing. And if you look at my heart right now, I have the same arrogance and cruel thoughts and selfishness going on right now. But praise God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we've looked at the entire chapter, all three characters. I want to finish off by considering how we apply this to our life. This, uh, I think the chapter is kind of bursting with application here. But I want to keep our focus on the last verse, on uh, verse 10, and how the character of God compels us to be like him. So we read in the Bible that God says, be holy as I am holy, or to love others as I have loved you. And we're created in the image of God, and we're called to reflect that image rightly. So let's look at the words of Paul to the Ephesians, where he has another instance of the same thing. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So we've seen that God is forgiving. He forgave the sin of the Ninevites. He forgives our sin as well. And we thought about the cost of the forgiveness. It's paid in full by Christ. But here Paul tells us that we should forgive others just as Christ forgave us. Those who have been forgiven of their sin against God ought to forgive others who sin against them. So God's forgiveness actually creates an obligation in us. And Jesus teaches us this throughout the Gospels. There's many places. Uh, Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And a few verses later, he goes on, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are really strong words. Um, But it's actually, I don't think it's the strongest words. I think there's even a more forceful place. It's uh, Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. It's in Matthew 18. And I'd like to, to, if you can take a minute to turn there. Um, In the Pew Bible, it's page 823. And I'd like to just read the whole parable, uh, starting from verse 21. It's not that long. Uh, And I, I think it's important to let Jesus simply speak for himself. So it's Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is hundreds of millions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This would be a few thousand dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this is like, it's really strong, isn't it? Jesus is hitting us like straight between the eyes. If we see how much God has forgiven us, the full cost that he paid at the cross, the only rational thing to do is that we're going to forgive others the wrongs they do against us. The debt we owe God because of our rebellion against him is like hundreds of millions of dollars because of God's immeasurable holiness and glory. And the debt others owe us because they've offended us, they haven't treated us right, whatever the wrong is, it's like a few thousand dollars. But still we find it hard to forgive, don't we? It's in our human, our human condition. I have no doubt most of you can quickly think of the name of some person who has wronged you. I know I can. In many cases, by God's grace, we can see that the debt is small. We look to the cross and we learn to forgive. We need to keep, and we got to keep forgiving again and again as we grow in grace. And the more we learn about God's grace, the more we're able to extend grace to others. The more we extend grace to others, the more we appreciate what God has done for us. But in some cases, the offense that someone has committed against you is immense. And there's no way you can call it small because the wound goes right into your soul. It's like someone has destroyed your life and you can't see a way forward. I don't think a secular psychologist can get to the heart of the matter. And if you try to self-medicate with alcohol, pornography, working nonstop, you're going to destroy yourself and I think you basically know it. So what do you do? My counsel to you is to reread Jonah chapter 3 and see yourself as a Ninevite needing God's mercy. There's actually something similar here about Jesus' stern warning at the end of this parable and Jonah's message to the city of Nineveh. In both cases, there's an impending disaster in your life, but right now you're getting a word of warning and any word of warning is a word of mercy. Instead of seeing yourself as a victim and just parking there, call out to God. He has the ability to transform our hearts with a power that we have no ability to muster ourselves. Uh, Ephesians says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Instead of looking around at the people who have hurt you, look to God who has the ability to shine light into darkness, to heal your soul, and to give you the ability to forgive as he has forgiven us in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so weak and the words of Jesus are so strong. We struggle to forgive those around us even when we know you sent your Son to forgive us completely. We see sin in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. But the love of Christ controls us we believe he gave his life for us so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. You reconciled the world to yourself in Christ. Make us ministers of reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, 
visit us at www.ccclh.org.